You're listening to the BCTLE podcast, a resource made possible by the BD Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence at Taylor University. My name is Timothy Berkey, and on this podcast, uh, we dive into our calling as teachers, our care for students, and how we design for learning. And my guest this week is Dr. Carrie King. Carrie teaches in the English department here at Taylor. Uh, She also serves as a fellow to the BCTLE and has spent a lot of time thinking about how do we design our courses, our learning opportunities with learning at the center of our design. In my conversation with Carrie, we start talking about the nuts and bolts of designing a course. And this podcast is coming out in the middle of June. You may not be uh, in a place right now to be thinking about designing your courses for the fall. Maybe you are very firmly in summer mode, and I am so excited for you for that. This is not meant to rush you into the design. I hope that as you listen to today's episode, maybe there are one or two things that come out of my conversation with Carrie that you can just perk on for a little while this summer. Wherever you're at in your process getting ready for uh, our fall semester, maybe you're uh, still recovering from the spring semester. I know I am in many ways myself. That's totally fine. Uh, The BCTLE podcast this summer is about making connections across campus. It's about learning what we can keep and what we did well over the last year. And it's about getting excited for the fall. In this episode specifically, I find myself getting very excited for the fall. I'm teaching a class this upcoming fall that I keep on coming back to over and over and over again in my head. It's sort of like uh, if you remember when you were younger and uh, uh, you would lose a tooth and all you could do is just feel where that tooth had been. That's how I feel with this class. I feel like I just keep coming back to this class time and time again in my head. So if you find yourself in that place where you're thinking about an upcoming class, I think you're going to find some really useful ideas about how you could design great learning opportunities in that class. I'm really excited for you to hear my conversation with Carrie King. So let's not wait any longer. Let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Carrie King. Carrie, welcome to the VCTLE podcast. Thank you for having me. We've gotten a chance to work together uh, now uh, formally uh, at the BCTLE over the last uh, semester or so. Uh, But one of my first interactions with you outside of that context uh, was at the Course Design Institute in the summer of 2019. We've just wrapped up the Course Design Institute now for the summer of 2021. And I don't know where faculty are at right now. I know we're all in different headspaces. I am tentatively dipping a toe (laughs) into getting ready for the fall, but also anytime I get too deep in the details, I 
feel this need to pull back. Um, but I need to start thinking about some of the ways I'm designing both macro, the course as a whole, but also some of my content. Uh, how am I designing that with learning at the heart of it? Um, we use that phrase at the BCTLE, this idea of designing for learning. How do you hear that phrase, designing for learning? Well, I think part of it is the word design. So, for example, I'm a word person. I, I love words. That's what I do. Um, so when I talk to students about writing, I don't talk about writing. I talk about composing, creating. Because writing, we tend to think of as an action, an activity, something to get done. But as soon as I say, we're going to write a composition, I write, but I'm also composing and I'm combining those, all of a sudden it becomes a different connotation. We're talking about creating something, not just getting it done. And I think sometimes we come at planning as getting it done. I've got to get the day done. What am I going to get done this day for that day and so forth. But when we think about design, we're creating, we're developing, and we're creating a concept and we're, we're basing that concept on our students, not just on my content, not just on the things I need to get in that day, but what are the best ways that I can come about that conversation to engage my students in learning because we're designing for learning, not just getting the content in, we want the students to learn. And so when I step back and really think about designing for learning, I'm putting my students at the center and I'm allowing myself and the content to come along with them in a learning process. Um, so I've got to come at it with that big picture idea. Now, granted, the hard part about being college professors is we're creating that syllabus in the summer and planning out for an entire semester for students we haven't even met yet, right? And so I'm creating a big picture idea that then I can go in and develop as needed. And so I need to design it with enough structure that I have um, a plan in place, but also flexibility that I can meet my students where they're at. And that's part of that, that mucky... Um, uh, sticky part of designing uh, that can be overwhelming for some. What I'm hearing is three different ways of thinking about this creative design process. One is designing for my content, mm -hmm. one is designing for my students, and one is designing for learning. Mm -hmm. am, I, am I thinking about that in the right way? That, that there are different ways I could be designing my classes? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Um, and I think that each of us as teachers design a little bit differently, right? Um, I'm a very different teacher than you are. I'm a very different teacher than a lot of my colleagues in the sciences or even the person whose office is next door to me. I am a different teacher. And so um, when I come at my class, I might come at it a little differently, but I'm still designing with our students, our Taylor students in mind, um, and definitely thinking about my integration of faith and learning, um, which comes back to my content because I think sometimes that's content driven just as much as it is um, uh, personal understanding and uh, faith-based um, because there are spaces in my content that I can talk about faith integration that are very different than yours. Right. And so there are multi multiple levels here in how we approach design. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of faculty get overwhelmed, right? Um, because there isn't one, this is the way you do it. <laughs> it. There's not one way to do it. And 
part of this is trial and error. Uh, we talk often about, you know, the first time you're teaching a course, you're really trying to figure out the content, right? <laughs> what is the content I need to cover in this class? And, and you can't get away from that because we do have to figure out the content. Second time you, you, you're working through a course, the second time you teach it, you're going back and thinking about how do I do this even better? And then that third time is usually the sweet spot where you start really thinking about the full um, development of the course. Um, you can do that from the very beginning, and, I, and that's what I encourage faculty to think about is design from the very beginning. But there's the, the nuts and bolts. Sometimes you just have to work through it in order to fully understand what you need to do. You've said something now a couple of times, and it's making me think about how I approach students. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we teach to students in communication is that every piece of communication is intended for an audience. There's an, there is someone who will either read or hear or watch your communication. Um, and that I encourage my students to start with the audience in mind because that will impact a lot of the choices that they make. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that question when you're teaching a class of non-majors, of who are my students? Is there a general idea of a, of a Taylor student in your mind that you come back to? Is it based on someone? Is it based on a set of values or beliefs about our students? How do you approach that question? Well, I, I'm a firm believer that our students are all different. Um, okay. But we in have, what ways? Oh. Various ways. Every way? Every way. That's the one variability we can count on is all of our students are different in learning styles and in interests and in, in um, what they're studying, uh, uh, their backgrounds, uh, their families. There's so much diversity in our students that we often, um, we kind of lump them together. However, we are all here at Taylor for, you know, called to a certain mission um, and, and uh, focus of what we do. Um, and so when we think about our Taylor students, we tend to lump, but yet, even in my American Lit, and I'll use this as an example, the first thing I do, the first day of class, I actually do a, a who are we in the classroom um, kind of lecture. And I know what all the different majors are, what all the different classes are, um, the interests. I survey them on their hobbies and what they like to do, because I want them to see how um, we all vary in that space and how I'm different. I'm not a tailored grad. I'll admit that. Um, I can admit that. You can <laughs> it's a safe can, place. I'm a not a tailored grad. Um, so, so, you know, that's always an assumption that students make. And there's an assumption we make about who our students are. Um, so when I say Taylor students, I'm talking about my students, like th those that are in my class. And my um, exposed class is very different. They're gen ed. Um, my 101 students are very different than my even exposed students. My American Lit students are very different than my writing theory and grammar students. So when I'm thinking about my students, I'm, I'm defining them by who's in that class and who has chosen to be here at Taylor, which our students are different than those that are choosing to go other places. And part of our job when we're designing is to keep that in mind. Um, they've chosen to be here at Taylor for a reason. Um, and I'm a firm believer that God has brought us here, us, as well as them in that space for that class for that time. And so I keep that in mind as I design. Uh, my content is not separate from that. My students are not separate from that. I am not separate from that. I sometimes make assumptions even about um, their faith, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, was a, I was a student who showed up at a Christian college, and this is something I talk to my students a lot often. 
that um, God plucked me out of a non-Christian background and put me in a Christian college. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually center my expose classes around community. So when I design for my expose class, I know that I am designing that class for students that are transitioning into Taylor. And so as much as I'm working on their writing skills and their communication skills in that space, I'm also helping them get used to Taylor. So that's part of my design. Um, And for some of my students, that transition to getting used to Taylor is academic. How do I write a paper, not just to get it done, but to learn something? That's really the focus. How do I learn something through writing? Um, How do I honor and love on those scholars I'm bringing to conversation, right? Those are a big piece of what I do. But also those students who are now at a Christian college and they don't understand all of this around them, um, the terminology, the language, um, the expectations. Uh, I'm going to out myself here. I grew up in a, my father was a command sergeant major in the army, and I grew up with my dad, and I knew that swearing at school was was not okay. But at home, swearing was normal, right? Um, but when I showed up at a Christian college, um, I understood that I shouldn't swear in my classes, absolutely. Um, but when I was back in the dorm, why not? That's home. That was a safe place. And so my RA, we called them RAs where I went to school, put a swear jar outside my door. Yes. And, and there were students around me who were like, why are you here at a Christian college? What are you doing here? And I thought, what, I, what am I doing wrong? And it took a couple friends to come alongside and say, I choose not to swear. And this is why. And they biblically walked me through why they chose not to swear. It was not something as a freshman in college that I had even considered. But that's part of the discipleship, right? That understanding and learning why we do what we do, um, that is a place where a lot of our students are. And as faculty, as students, sometimes we don't recognize that we have this, I hadn't read scripture. So Biblet for me was eye-opening. <laughs> I'm like, Jonah did what? <laughs> um, <laughs> and my students are like, what is wrong with this girl? Um our, we have students that are there and, you know, allowing our students to be in that muck of learning and figuring out their space in this Christian environment. Um, but also those students who are have grown up in Christian homes, my own kids are going to be here. Grown up in Christian homes who know the Bible exceptionally well, how do we challenge them and yet meet those students who are new to scripture, right? That's I'm designing for that big of a space, um, and, and I don't know each semester where my students are going to be. I've created this course, and now we're here, but I have to have the room to get to know them to then dive into where they need to be. I love, oh, we're, we're jumping around. Here we go. <laughs> I love that as the backdrop for this conversation yeah. about how do I design a course? Well, who's in the class? Yes. Right? Who's in your seats? Yes. Uh, but what you just said is it's a wide range, right? Yeah, it is. So our listeners are going to be a wide range. Uh, some of you listening, maybe you've attended the Course Design Institute mm-hmm. and uh, you've gotten deep in the weeds on uh, some course design principles. Um, some of you listening may have been handed a syllabus uh, and told this is the class that you're teaching and maybe don't feel able to design the course uh, because it's an inherited course or it's a staple. In and your multiple de- people are teaching it? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> can you help us think through some basic course design principles that whether I 
dreamt up this class and it is wholly my own, or I've been given a syllabus and told to teach this course. Can you help us think through some basic course design principles that could apply in any of these situations that we find ourselves this summer? Absolutely. Um, I am a big fan of backward design, meaning that I start with where I want to go, where I want my students to go, um, and then I build from there. So what is it at the end of the semester I want my students to be able to do? Um, and some of that is just clear. Um, for example, um, I have a colleague who teaches in the chemistry department. He's, he's pretty awesome. A close, um, a close a colleague. A close, close colleague. And he, at the end of one of his courses, his students take an ACS exam. It's a national exam that they're going to have to um, succeed at. It's part of their final. And so that's his driving force. But how he designs is then from that, how do I develop the skills needed and the information needed to then have them do that, that exam? I, in Expos, um, am preparing them to write an 8 to 10 page paper, right? So what are those skills I need them to be able to do in that processing? But let's be honest, I'm not just teaching them to write that 8 to 10 page product. I'm also, you know, one of my learning outcomes is I want them to be divergent writers. I want them to be able to go out into different spaces on Taylor campus and write for different professors, um, different audiences, um, have different expectations given to them that they can meet. Um, I, I don't want them to just write one type of writing, right? So as I'm designing my course, I'm introducing various approaches to reading and writing so that they can be divergent writers and divergent thinkers um, as they go out across Taylor. So my design is based on what it is I want them to be able to do at the end of my class. And when I know that, where I know I want them to be as learners, in the end, I backtrack and then start thinking about how do I get there? Um, and so what do I need to do to summatively assess that they're there, right? What are those things for our expos class, for all of our um, uh, expos classes? I keep saying it, expos, Renal, college composition. You know, this is what I want them to be able to create but I also need those skills. So I need them to know how to find citation work and how to respect citation work. Um, you know, we're, we're making a paradigm shift in high school, or from high school to college writing. In high school, our students think that citing is all about, oh goodness, it's about proving that I read something or proving that I didn't plagiarize. Mm -hmm. I want them to come at this from a Christian perspective of how do I love my neighbor? How do I honor those I'm bringing to a conversation? Um, well, as as well as how do I help my readers learn from my reading? Because that's what we do as scholars, right? We're making that shift from just being a student to scholar. That's where I want them to go. So as I'm then backwards designing, I'm looking at ways that they can practice those things so that when they get to the summative, they know how to do it. And not just do it in my class, but then carry it out to their other classes. So first and foremost, I'm planning with the end in mind. And then I'm backtracking and thinking about the content the formative assessments, those things that can help me understand whether or not they're learning these skills and where I need to go back and reteach and kind of develop um, so that they can then do well at those summatives. Okay, so I want to stop you there for a Please second do. because there are a couple of pieces of terminology mm -hmm. that um, I'm going to out myself. I don't know. I fully understand the difference of what you're talking about. So help me help me with this idea of formative and summative. I think I understand assessment, right? Yeah. Those are our assignments? Yeah. Not necessarily. I don't always assess all of my assignments. Um, we t <laughs> this is where we get we get mucky, right? Um, we tend to think of assessment as grading. Sure. Right? But assessment can be an observation. 
I can look at a student and see whether or not they are engaging, whether or not they're able to do the skill. If I'm teaching titrations in a chemistry class, I can look at them and see whether or not they're getting the skill set, right? Um, that is an observation. I'm not taking a grade for that. So I can do formative assessment by observation or by giving feedback and providing a grade. It can be either. Um, so when I think formative assessment, I'm doing some sort of observation or assessment to allow not only the students to have low stake opportunities to practice the skills we're trying to achieve in the end, but also I am giving low stakes opportunities for me to observe whether or not they're getting it. Because if they're not getting it, I need to go back and make sure that they are. And so I might need to reteach something. I might need to meet with that student. I might need to provide some feedback so that they can revise and do something differently. Um, those are opportunities for failure. And our students don't like to do that, hear that, but if they're not getting it, I need to know that early on so that I can build to where we're heading. So formative assessment is a teaching learning opportunity. Absolutely. Right? Okay, so I'm recognizing, um, I'm gonna give the example of um, integrative communication, the foundational core comm class. Mm -hmm. They give a presentation uh, as part of that class a formal researched five to seven minute presentation. <clears throat> I have sort of progressive, I call them check-in mm -hmm. assignments. I do that as well. That's formative assessment. It is, and it, it, formative assessment is also often called scaffolding. We scaffold what we're building. We do that when we build buildings, right? We have right. to scaffold up to, to make sure that we can get the building done. Um, we scaffold formative assessment so that you can see where students are and so they know where they're headed. That's exactly what it is. Perfect, okay, so contrast that with summative assessment then. Is summative assessment a grade? Yes. Okay, okay. Um, summative assessment is high stakes. It's it's the, the evaluation. Have they been able to meet the expectations? Um, I do multiple summative assessments in my class. I might have some of my summative assessments that are acting as formative assessments. So imagine with me, big picture course, since I'm designing, I'm going to an eight to 10 page paper. That's where we're headed, or a final exam. That's where I'm headed. But there are certain skill sets that I want students to be able to meet in order to complete that high stakes evaluation at the end. Right, right? Be because no one class is purely one skill. It's not. So when I plan out my class, I think about, okay, what are those big skill sets? What do I need them to be able to do first? And then where do I need to build to next? So in my Xpos class, I'm gonna use that as an example. The first thing I need them to understand is that we read and write within community. We read and write within community. And so I want them to read and write within context that they understand and that they feel safe. And so I want them to write about community that they know. And so I do a, an essay at the end of that, say unit or module if you're thinking online um, or context, I write within that essay. So they have more of a high stakes essay there at the end of that assignment set that they get evaluated on. Do they understand these principles that we're trying to do? Um, I do give chances for revision, some people don't, but I still, I love to, it's an evaluation, they get to revise. Then we move on to the next piece. The next piece is I need them to understand research and why we do research, and that research isn't always just in a database. And so I pull in Ashley Chu and we look at archive work and we look at um, how do you cite a tweet? How do you cite things that, that they are utilizing in their work that I want them 
to problem solve. I need them to understand that citations are problem solving and sometimes they're messy. And so that becomes a focus of how we work through this uh, next set of skills. And then there's an essay at the end of that that's evaluation. And then I build to another one. Now, come my summative, that eight to 10 page paper, we're incorporating all of these lessons that we've learned through these other pieces to then accomplish that text, um, that summative piece. Um, so I'm building, I've scaffolded, I've built, but in the entire design, I am leading to that summative and the learning outcomes that I hope my students are able to do at the end of my course. So I called formative assessments a teaching learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. I was thinking summative assessments are then an evaluation of that learning. Mm -hmm. But you just described a scenario in which you have a summative assessment that you allow students to revise. And this is making me think about a conversation that um, I've had with uh, Julie Borkin mm -hmm. about final exams. Mm. Um, and Julie has challenged me with this uh, question about whether or not final exams ought not be a place where learning is happening still. <laughs> I thought, summative assessment, evaluation, they know where they stand in terms of their ability to produce the outcome, right, mm -hmm. of the course. But you've introduced an, uh, a way in which you're using summative assessment, but you're allowing revision, which leads me to think, Carrie, that you're telling me that all assessment, whether it's formative or assessment, has opportunities for learning to happen. Is that what you're saying? Isn't that our goal in education, to learn? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but I can't think of a single final exam I've ever taken where I left thinking that I learned something about the content. We have a lot of faculty here on campus who do reflective final exams or do portfolio final exams, or do, um, you know, uh, when we tend to think final exam is the summative, right? Sure, we're sort of yeah. moving yeah. away yeah. culturally from the exam, exam as a idea. summative assessment. Um, but even in a final exam, you know, you can step back and say, um, how well did you prepare for this exam? How, where, where do you feel like you were successful in this exam? Where do you feel like you weren't? And so you can actually have some self-assessment reflection there, work in the exam so that they can understand themselves as a learner. So it's not just walking away and going, oops, <laughs> I really biffed that. But to let the professor know, you know, where you're at. But yeah, I think, I think that there is room in summative work. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, when we ended last, oh gosh, last year, um, my students were just beginning their eight to 10 page research papers when we were sent home, when we pivoted off campus. And so I was trying to do a lot of the research and, and uh, mentoring them as writers all over the country. Um, and so I really didn't feel like by the time I got the final product that should have been their final research paper, that they had completed what we wanted them to complete. As a, in our department. So I actually gave them a chance in the final exam to go back and revise their research paper. And I gave them each individual things that I wanted them to adapt um, or to revise some things to look at and then gave them that uh, final exam time to go back and do the revision and then reflect on those revisions and how they impacted that final piece. Then I evaluated that final paper. Um, I hadn't done that before, uh, but 
it was powerful for them to say, oh, wait, this isn't a final piece. Because part of what we're also helping students in this course especially is that writing is always continually being able to be improved. Um, our students have this kind of like get in, get out, it's done, I don't want to look at it again. But when that happens, they're not learning the skills necessarily that we need them to carry on to other courses, to other spaces as writers. And so that was a time that I went, hmm, I liked this. It was effective. I actually did it in my fall class this last year as well. And wait, I did it in my spring class as well. Um, it was something that an adaption that I made in that context in our COVID space um, that I found, you know what? they learned something by going back. And for some of them, it was content. Some of them, it was citations. Uh, but by the time I see an eight to 10 page paper, I usually have had enough scaffolding and formative throughout it that I know what concerns and issues we have before I even see that final paper. Um, now, that's this course. It's, it's a format. This is a course that is designed to prepare them to write across campus. My upper level classes, my methods class, the, uh, these are pre-service teachers who are getting ready to student teach in the fall. The unit I get from them, that is the unit that's done. We've done enough work through it, enough um, a peer review, enough response from me that by the time I see it, that's, that's, that's it. I'm evaluating it and I expect it to be exceptional. As you are describing this, I feel conflicted. Okay. Because I was... To the extent that any of us are trained to teach in grad school, usually through examples and modeling, right? Mm -hmm. That's not how I was shown mm -hmm. to teach. The the there there is a hard cutoff of learning that happens, mm -hmm. and it stops usually a week before the final exam, and. The final exam is to show you to hold up a mirror and say, here's what you learned. This is what you look like. Mm -hmm. Go to the next course. But you have just described a slightly different paradigm in which even in the final exam period, they learning is still happening. And I started to panic a little bit. I don't know that I agree with everything that was modeled for me in my graduate training. Um, in fact, I know there's plenty that I, I've, I've sort of shed. <clears throat> but that one feels very tightly ingrained. And so I, I felt this uh, sort of, I could hear an old advisor in my <laughs> ear saying, no more excuses, no more time. Mm -hmm. The time is come. And, and we are, we are reflecting to them their choices. They can make whatever choice they want. Mm -hmm. That's not our job. We just let them know what that choice gave them. Mm -hmm. And so I started to get a little panicky. Okay. But then you also described the next step and the class after where eventually you do get to that point, right? So if I'm connecting some dots, this idea of scaffolding Happens isn't in, just... Not just in our class, but in our time here at Taylor as a whole. Okay. So this idea of designing for learning and this idea of backward design, designing with the end in mind, is not always designing the end of my class, what I want them to have by the end of this class, but it is sometimes what I want them to have three or four courses down the road. Mm -hmm. 
and now I'm backing it up and thinking about maybe some checkpoints along the way. Is that what you is that what you're yeah. describing? Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Wardle talks about transfer. Well, what are the things I want my students to be able to transfer from my class or one project to another to another to another? Um, but we think about that, you know, in our broader picture of education. Um, I'm not just teaching a student to to get a grade in my class. I'm teaching a student who will hopefully take what they're learning in my class and apply it outside of my class. Um, with writing, that's quite easy, right? I want them to be able to take those skills and use them in their Bible classes and their major as a you know, business major and so forth. But I'm also wanting that to transfer into their daily life and outside of Taylor. So we're, we're, we're teaching them not just for what they're going to do in my semester or in their junior year, but 20 years from now, um, when they sit down and talk to their own child, if they have children, and that children, child is frustrated about citing a source because all the teacher wants to do is prove that I, I want them in the back of their head say, you know what, you're, lo- you're, you're loving on another, another person in that way. You're loving your neighbor by citing their work because you know what, that's their work, and we want, we want to honor that. And so when I'm teaching, I'm, I'm not just teaching in a vacuum of my course because that's part of oh gosh, that's part of the beauty of what we do here at Taylor because we recognize that we're, we're educating a whole person. I love this idea of starting with the end in mind and you're blowing up where the end is. What are some of the other ideas behind course design that you would encourage us to think about as we start with the end in mind? Part of this is, is an opportunity for colleagues to have great conversations about how we scaffold student learning across um, the entire curriculum of our department. Um, because I think we have our courses, we have our department, we have the university. And I think it's, it's a great way to remind ourselves that we don't teach in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. We don't design in a vacuum. I'm not educating our students by myself. Um, we're part of a a design team, shall we say, um, that we're all working to develop these courses to better uh, prepare our students to meet the mission of Taylor, um, which is kind of cool. Because sometimes I can get really focused in on what I'm trying to get done <laughs> and forget that that the design is bigger than that. I am lucky to have uh to share a wall of my office with Julie Borkin. You are so lucky. I uh, want to come hang out in your space. <laughs> we spend a lot of time together talking about mm-hmm. courses and uh, learning opportunities for our students. Yeah. And uh, because we share disciplinary language, mm-hmm. we can often very comfortably move in and out of each other's spaces. It sounds like the way we've been talking about design is that I should also be able to slide into biblical studies, to uh, math, to engineering, to English, at least to talk about the design of the course. The content could be outside my realm, but the principles behind how the course is designed, those aren't disciplinary. Not necessarily, no. I, and I think that, and there's, we, we could talk teaching, you know, for learning, um, scholarship of teaching and learning. Uh, you know, much of what we do is, is theory based, it's research based. We don't just do what we do uh, 
haphazardly. There's a lot of um, background research, and I'd love to have those conversations with people about um, universal design for learning, right? It's an approach um, to how we design. Um, we can talk about um, engagement and how we do engagement and all in, in, in scaffolding and formative assessment and summative assessment, and that's all kind of the background um, to what we do. And once you feel confident and strong in that, it's adaptable, right? It, it, good, good pedagogy is based on research and in theory, um, how we then implement it is going to vary be depending on our content, our, who we are. Some of us love lecture. Some of us don't. Some of us love conversation. You do more of a flipped approach to teaching, um, with recording and so forth. And that in all of that, there is learning happening. Right. And so, yeah, I, I love talking once again, my colleague in chemistry department, he and I do teaching very differently. But if you look at how we come at a course, we're always looking to the end and then building back. And so those are things that we can talk about. And sometimes if I can have a conversation, hey, I'm, I'm looking at this. I don't know if it's the best way or best approach or I did this and it was awful because um, I still after 20 years of teaching, there are those days where I have this idea and I think in my head it's going to work and it's going to be beautiful and it doesn't. I need to be able to, to bring that to colleagues and have a conversation. Um, just as I need to, hey, what are your students learning? What are you guys doing in class? What, what, what have you done this week that's really cool? Those are conversations that I can grow as a teacher in. Um, but sometimes we're so focused on the day-to-day -day planning and I, I, that difference between the planning and the designing the planning that I don't have those conversations because I'm just trying to get stuff done. And I, that's, I think, one of the goals for the BCTLE. We really want to give space, and we're excited about that new location over in Euler to give that space for conversation. Hey, what are you doing? What's working? What's not working? Um, where can we go from here? And I think when we start having those cross-discipline conversations, we learn even more because especially when I teach reading and writing, I come at how do we read? How do we read well? And that's something I think that has impacted my colleague in the chemistry department because it's something people just read in chemistry. We just read. And we talk about how do you do the experiments well? Okay, but how do you how do you prepare them to read that textbook, yeah. how, those articles? And then that changes then from our conversations how he then does that. Um, so there's so many opportunities for conversation for us to be able to cross, dis, you know, to have conversation cross discipline about how we do the teaching that isn't necessarily about the content. I, I want to go back for a second because you mentioned universal design for learning. And this has become um, a topic that I'm hearing more about, and I think uh, faculty across campus are hearing more about Universal Design for Learning, or UDL. <clears throat> At its simplest, UDL is about there is no average student. Right. Right? Right. And that different students uh, receive information differently express their learning uh, differently um, and engage differently and they engage with the content differently right how do I as a faculty member honor that difference honor that idea of no average student I mean this is circular this is what we were talking about at the beginning start with an idea of who your students are but how do I <laughs> they all are different <laughs> right if they're all different how do I inject that belief into how I'm designing my course. This is a paradigm shift in higher ed. It really is. Uh, where 
UDL has been prominent and utilized in K through 12 education for quite some time. But in the last, say, five to 10 years, we've started to see it pop up more in higher ed because it's effective. Um, it's, it, it's how we engage and um, uh, work with students, uh, especially when we're starting to want to meet the needs of our exceptional students as well as our students who might struggle, right? We're not just designing for that middle, middle point. And that's what higher ed has always done. It's been, I'm going to teach this class, you're going to lecture, and if you don't get it, get out. And higher ed's become a little more competitive. <laughs> and we have students who are coming to college who hadn't come to college prior. And so there are some people who are of the mindset, well, they shouldn't be here. Um, there are others of the mindset that we want to educate those who are here. And, and that's why in a uh, K through 12, you have to educate those who are in the room. That's what, why, in, in part, UDL was designed. We have to meet the needs of those who are in the room. Um, there was this weeding out that would happen before college, right? Um, and that is now starting to shift. So I say that because there's a lot of research and development happening in higher ed UDL. Um, and uh, Eric Moore, who's a Taylor grad, is on the forefront of a lot of that higher ed UDL. Um, but the idea that we want to provide flexibility and for some faculty, this is hard um, because we have kind of our, our approach that works really well for us. And it works really well for that kind of middle line or upper level student. Um, but when we think about UDL, we want to think about multiple ways um, to engage our students. So even in a syllabus, um, how do I provide that syllabus? Do I just do it as a handout? Do I post it on Blackboard? Um, do I give a reading option where they could uh, have their computer read it aloud to them? Because I want to be able to, to adapt to that student who might not be able to visually see it on their computer, right? And so UDL is designing for all students, not just the middle student. Um, when we think about representation of information, um, I have started using uh, audio recordings in my literature classes. Um, I love audiobooks. I love audiobooks. I use them all the time I, when I'm running, when I'm walking. When I, why would I not incorporate those in a reading space? It, and, and it was really hard at first because I'm like, no, it's a literature class. They must read. I have students who are highly, more highly engaged because they have that opportunity to listen. But then I also have to teach. How do you listen well to a text online in an academic manner? So that added a little bit of my teaching need, right? I can't just say, now go listen to this like you would any podcast. No, you've got it. This is still your text that you are studying. But when I open those options for not only visually reading but listening, I'm providing more of an engagement opportunity in how they access that information. Um, and then the representation, for example, um, you know, I might um, uh, provide the option for them to do a podcast like this or a research paper. And that gets muddy as far as how we then assess. Um, so I love, I love talking about UDL. And for those who have dabbled in it and who have utilized it, they find ways or they, they're finding that they're connecting with their students um, in a different way. Um, those that are often intimidated, it, it takes work. It takes reimagining how you approach your class, how you design your class, um, and how you design your assessments even. I uh, am one of those uh, who have dabbled in UDL. Um, higher education uh, has rarely been accused of being accessible. In my office that we're sitting in right now, there are a couple of things hanging on the walls um, that are products of me 
providing flexibility in how students represent their learning. Beautiful infographic behind you. I've got a piece of art hanging in my office that is, uh, I think I've talked about on the podcast before, a student who I thought was a lost cause, totally flippant about showing up to class when she was in class, hardly ever engaged. And uh, I gave flexibility on what their final project could look like. Mm -hmm. And I got this with this incredible... It's beautiful. Not only is it good, but there was a two to three page research paper that accompanied it explaining how it represented the content. And I'll be honest, Carrie, if you had asked me if this student was capable of writing a research paper, I would have said no, that we, her educators throughout her life, had somehow let her slip through the cracks. And yet... I get emotional when thinking about this student. But I also hear this question. Not only is grading this difficult, because grading, I'm not an art uh, professor. I can explain what I received through this. Um, But I do teach communication. I've been in the public speaking world for. almost my entire life, I can very easily grade a presentation. Mm -hmm. I can do it in my sleep. This is a little bit more challenging to grade, right? Are our summative assessments flexible enough to allow anything? Or are there some standards to what we're supposed to be teaching in higher education. I'm thinking about things like communication skills, whether it's written or verbal. Those are some of the foundations of our society, being able to write and communicate well. So should I allow anything? Or are there some things I need to be more rigid with? And I'm going to say it comes back to what are your what are your learning objectives of that course? What is What are those things that the students need to be able to do in the end? If they need to be able to take an ACS exam, that is not a flexible assessment. <laughs> that is what they need to be able to do. If they need to put together a grant proposal for um, uh, their OVC course, that is not a flexible, it can't, there's a product that's part of that conversation. So when I'm teaching an eight to 10 page paper and that product is the outcome, that's not flexible. I have to have that. And so we have some courses that have a very set expectation of product as part of their outcome. In those spaces, that's not going to be flexible. If I am trying to assess um, content knowledge or theoretical knowledge or you know the, the, the content or the application of skill, that is something where we have flexibility because the actual product is not the outcome. So if your goal for that project was more theoretical or content understanding and so forth, the way that they can show that tends to be wide open. Um, in my writing theory and grammar, um, <laughs> I have 
uh, and I, I believe this was, Barb Bird used to do this with one of her courses, and I can't even tell you which one. She gave flexibility of, of genres, essay types. And so I let them take this the, these theoretical concepts that I want them to understand through research, and they get to ex, uh, express it either as a fable, as an analytical fable. I have students who are like, can I just break this argument down? Like, okay, go ahead. Um, or a, a play, put these people in the same space and ha let them have a conversation. Some of the best theoretical conversations now Aaron Householder often shows up in those plays um battling back and forth with these individuals um but to take somebody that they know and to put in conversation with Aristotle and Plato Plato and Socrates they have to really understand the content to do that and so it's it's different than the analytical paper but what do they have to do they're doing just like you did there where they're they're then writing about the research that they did and they're citing it and they're talking about it. And so I think when it really depends on what you're trying to assess, what is it you want them to do? Um, Dan King in his analytical chemistry class at the end of that book, it's or end of that course, they do a book. They are, um, uh, design, they are researching instrumentation. Uh, I'm not going to know which class, specific class it is, but he has them does, uh, draw out the actual instruments and how they're working and, and define them. And, and by the end of the course, they've got something done for each instrument and they walk out of that class with a book of all of the workings of the instruments. How cool is that? Now, he could just give them an exam, but I guarantee you they know the content better because they've gone through the process of not only um, looking at it, processing it, drawing it, writing about it, and then producing it, which is pretty cool. So I would say it depends on what it is you are assessing. UDL can seem scary, Yes, I think, because there are certain things that have to be done in certain disciplines. Yes. And so the idea of it's all open can be a little frightening. But what we're saying is you know your content and you know where some of those more rigid things lie. Mm -hmm but giving opportunities in those other areas for flexibility can be really helpful to our students. Absolutely. And and it might be that you're building test skills. Um, so it's it's definitely knowing you, knowing yourself, knowing your content, knowing your field, because this is you know broader than just our content, right? It's our field. How do, how do scholars express themselves in our field? Mm -hmm. um, if they're doing presentations in our field, then yeah, we're probably preparing them to do presentations in our field. Um, but this, this is where conversation is beautiful, to talk with our colleagues in our disciplines, to talk outside of our disciplines. Hey, what are, what are students doing in your class? What are they doing in my class? What are they, um, to talk to the students. Hey, what are you doing in your math classes? What a great opportunity to learn about them and learn about their learning. Um, I, I love that space right be, before and after class to say, hey, what are you learn, learning in BibLit right now? Because that allows me to not only learn what my colleagues are doing and what my students are learning, but to let my students see that I see them outside of my class, that their that their day doesn't end at the bell when they walk out of my room, right? They're whole people, and and that's what we're designing for is not just their time here at Taylor, but outside of Taylor as well. This podcast is about having some of those conversations. So Carrie, thanks for being a part of the conversation. It's my pleasure. This is one of my favorite things to do here at Taylor is to talk with my colleagues. Thanks for being a part of the conversation. If you're looking for more ways to get involved with the BCTLE, whether it's session content, resources, email bctle at taylor.edu. Our mission at the BCTLE 
is to encourage and equip faculty in their calling as teachers, their care for students, and their design for learning. We believe in you. We've seen what you've been doing for your students. We hope that you feel encouraged and equipped to make Monday just a little bit better.